Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And Dennis Altman's a writer, an academic, who's here with us this morning to speak about his latest book, which is a memoir of diary entries linking events today, both here in Australia and also in the US, with his reflections on the past. And Dennis, as many of you will know, was in the US in the early 1970s at the beginning of the gay liberation movement there. And there again in the 1980s, when the extent of the AIDS health crisis was unfolding, his book, Homosexual Oppression and Liberation, was published in 1971. And since then, he's done a lot. Um, He's been an academic at La Trobe for decades and written a dozen or more books over the years contributed to stacks of magazines and journals and uh, now he says he's in a kind of retirement but he is touring his new book it's called unrequited love diary of an accidental activist and congratulations and thanks for coming in to triple r thanks it's and, nice to be here and um you say that you're an accidental activist are you also an accidental writer or is that always the plan that you would no write? i think i th- I I like to think of myself as a writer. In fact, when I get introduced and people either say academic or activist or they put the two together and I sit there saying, yeah, but please, what I really want to be is a writer. I think the reality is, of course, I have been a full-time academic for most of almost all of my adult life. Uh, So that's fair enough. Um, But I think what gives me the most pleasure and what I feel is probably the most important thing I do is to write. And you, you, you mentioned in the book also about you being slightly more comfortable with the label writer because I guess you have a license to explore nuance and complexity in a way that perhaps when you're an activist advocating for you know a very definite cause, you can't always deal in that level of nuance. Yes, look, I think that's really important. And, and I know it comes up several times because my sense is that when you're an activist – you actually have to speak in slogans. You have to simplify issues. That's not, that's not a put-down. That's just the reality. If you want to mobilise people, you need a couple of pretty simple statements and they then become slogans, whatever, catch cries, whatever. I think as a writer, though, you need to be constantly questioning, problematising. I'm, I'm one of those people who tends to like to take the opposite even when I'm supporting a position, I will do so rather cynically. And I think that that's probably why... I mean, writing is a very individualistic task. Activism is something that involves constantly interacting with and indeed subordinating yourself often to a majority. Yeah, and I, I, um, I mean, I really enjoyed reading your book, as a series of diary entries and I actually did sort of go well what if I read a bit at the beginning and then I flick to the end and I go back Mm -hmm. and and it actually you can read it in that way and I suppose as a writer I don't know whether you thought about someone reading the book in that way sort of flicking back and forward through as as you kind of go back and forward to the present and then back back to the past. Oh I think the one thing I did think about, there is a quite lengthy index and most of the index are names and I'm very conscious of the fact that anyone who might have the slightest chance of being in the book will go straight to the index and then they will go straight to that page. I understand that because that's what I would do. But I think the whole point of writing as, as, as a series of diary entries was it breaks up the rather boring 
trope of most memoirs, which is a very detailed chronological, you know, and then, and then, and then. Whereas because I've, ironically, it is chronological because I wrote it as a series of diary entries over two years, but that gave me the freedom to move backwards and forwards. So the way you read it seems to be perfectly sensible. In fact, you, you might find a continuity by doing that, uh, that isn't there if you sit down and read it, you know, from page one through to the end. It, it's funny you mentioning the idea of someone going straight to the page that they're mentioned in the book because that's exactly what our last guest, David Mann, <laughs> did when we mentioned that, you know, he gets a very glowing review um, in your book. He's mentioned at one particular point. But, I mean, have you been keeping a diary for a long time? You know, a long time ago, probably before either of you were born, so we're talking over 40 years ago, the writer Christopher Ishwood said to me, you should always keep a diary. And in fact, I now have diaries that go back over 40 years. Now, when I say diaries, they're basically no more than extended appointment books. And they're enormously useful for, for giving me dates and people. The problem is that often people show up. And at the time, I clearly felt that if I wrote a name, that name would remain, you know, enshrined in my memory forever. I have to acknowledge that often names show up. I haven't the slightest idea who they are. Uh, I sometimes can't read my own writing. Uh, that's getting worse as I get older. Um, but the real advantage of doing this is it actually means you get the sequence of things right. It gives you a way of reliving things that the human memory, I think, is not good at dates. I mean, most of us will remember important things or people we've met or places we've been. But if you then say, okay, what year, what month, most of us wouldn't be able to answer that. And that's the great advantage of having this, this very big stack of diaries that was essentially the, the raw material for unrequited love. And the title um, seemed to me to, you know, speaks to your love of the United States and I think also to a little bit the relationship between Australia and the United States, this idea of an unrequited love. And, I mean, you were visiting chair in the Australian Studies at Harvard at one point, which um, I read in your memoir, Dennis, that you found humbling because you're kind of chasing up students. You know, yes. there weren't so many people interested <laughs> in in studying Australia. And listen, I was a great hit because I got 19 students, which was apparently – that was considered really very good. But the reason I got 19 students is that I rather stretched the boundaries of Australian studies and I taught a subject called sex and globalisation and I said what I'm going to do in this subject is teach it from an Australian point of view and I remember making them all watch an Australian film uh, based on a Frank Moorhouse story and it was a fairly long film and as it went on, students quietly left the theatre. So the attempt to actually... But it was a genuine attempt to get them to think about global issues from a non-American perspective. But yes, the reality is there is virtually nobody at Harvard other than the expat Australians who cares about the fact that we have this apparently highly prestigious government-funded chair of Australian studies sitting in the cold corridors of Harvard University. And how does that speak to, I guess, this disconnect between the way that we imagine um, and, and envisage the United States and in some ways yearn for the United States from Australia compared to the way that, that Americans see, uh, see Australia and, and Australians? 
It's, it's really interesting. And of course, you know, you're right. That's why the book's called Unrequited Love. I think the reality is the United States is a global power. It's an imperial power. We are a small country with pretensions to a bit more. And we have this whole history of needing the support and the approval of the big boys. Uh, and, you know, Australian, hist- Australian history since settlement has really been one of dependence first for a very long time on Britain, now on the United States. And you can see it played out in the way that a number of our prime ministers claim very special relationships with American presidents. In fact, Scott Morrison is about to go to Washington um, and there will be a two-day bromance between him and Donald Trump, which will be regarded in Australia as enormously central and important. It will get virtually no airplay in the US and the next week somebody else will be there uh, and Donald Trump will presumably have forgotten ScoMo until the next photo op. Mm. And it is, I mean, it is interesting to look at it in that way and I, I suppose though that where um, your insights are really important um, Dennis and you and you write about this that you know you were in the US in in the early 70s and in the 1980s and uh, the idea that you know gay liberation started there and we I suppose borrow a lot of that history from the United States but here in Australia you write that our response to HIV AIDS really should have been paid attention to over in the United yes. States, but it wasn't. Yeah. Well, and I th- well the AIDS epidemic is a really interesting example of this because in the 1980s, Australia was one of a very small number of countries that were global leaders in finding innovative and sensible ways to react to the new epidemic. And they involved things like uh, early introduction of needle exchange, uh, really good government support of safe sex promotion, uh, The United States lagged very far behind, but ironically, we took a lot of the cultural representations of the epidemic, like the red ribbon and the quilt, and indeed ACT UP from the US. So it's a a very much a one-way trade in culture. Now, I guess the biggest argument against that, or the counter-argument, is a very sad one. The most influential Australian, of course, on American cultural life is Rupert Murdoch. Um, And I'm not that sure that that's something we want to be particularly proud of. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder. Um, How has the the current kind of presidency and and the political culture of the United States, I mean, has that had a role in in changing or problematising at all with the relationship that Australians feel they have and the connections they have to to that place? I, I think absolutely. And I ought to say, actually, unrequited love begins and ends with Donald Trump. Mm. Um, It, in fact, began because I had a wonderful sentence and and authors, when they've got a sentence, have to do something with it. And the sentence was, the weekend before Donald Trump was elected, my cat died. And, of course, what really struck me, being in the US then and having been back since, is that... The way the United States is currently going politically makes it less and less attractive to most people in Australia. We know this from public opinion data. We know that the United States under Barack Obama was a far more comfortable country for most of us. I think it's ironic, though, that the the huge impact of Trump means that even though we may not like him, it hasn't meant a decline in the impact of U.S. ideas and 
cultural exports in this country. In fact, they've probably increased. So while we are uncomfortable with Trump, my sense is that Trump has had a direct impact on our politics. And I think I say somewhere in the book, maybe I've written it elsewhere, that I think had Hillary Clinton been elected, my hunch is Malcolm Turnbull would have stayed leader of the Liberal Party. And had Malcolm Turnbull stayed leader of the Liberal Party, we can't, of course, then, you know, everything might well have been different. Who knows? Um, Certainly the airtime that Trump has given to right-wing issues like racism, the denial of climate change, has had a direct impact on this country. So that's kind of galvanised the, the further right or far right wing of of the conservative side of politics. I think that- it, may, it it also made it very possible, and you could start saying, why should we be bound by the Paris Agreement when the United States has pulled mm. out? Hillary Clinton would, of course, not done that. Um, now. We're not the only country in which that's true. I think that one might also speculate, would Bolsonaro have been elected president of Brazil uh, without the previous election of Donald Trump? I certainly don't think Donald Trump's responsible for the entire rise of right-wing authoritarianism across the world, and that would be attributing far too much power to him. But there's no doubt that having a president of the United States who seems most comfortable with authoritarian dictators uh, does have a direct impact on, on global politics. We're speaking with Dennis Altman. His new book, Unrequited Love, Diary of an Accidental Activist. And you mentioned Brazil and Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro then. And, um, I mean, you do... We can jump around because we it's can. a diary kind of style book. We can jump all over the place. But you write that you were in Brazil in the 1970s. And, um, yeah, so I'm interested in your um, reflections on on um, what was happening uh, with, with the academics and others that you met with yeah. in Brazil then and I suppose now. Well, I think I mean, it's extraordinary how little awareness we have in Australia of Brazil which is a country now of, what, 200 million people. And what I, I remember flying into Brazil. I came from Europe. And it's rather like flying into Melbourne. You fly over Brazil for hours and hours and hours. It really underlines the fact this is a big country, but a big country with a much bigger population than Australia. And an extraordinary and sometimes very tragic political history. The first time I went to Brazil uh, was in the shadow of the military dictatorship and I met at the very end of the 70s uh, some of the people who... There was a small radical gay movement in in Rio uh, and they're the people I met. I subsequently been back to Brazil a couple of times. One of the things that I've learnt is that there is an extraordinarily rich and interesting uh, discussion, research, activism around sexual politics in Brazil that, again, we are remarkably unaware of. And, you know, I say as a a great matter of regret, my university, La Trobe, used to teach Portuguese. We no longer do, which I think is, is a tragedy. I'm not sure there are any universities in Australia now that are teaching Portuguese. Yeah, I wonder why that is. I mean, has there been a a renewed focus on kind of the Anglosphere in academic institutions or...? Well, to be fair to universities, they're they're, they're driven to a large extent by student demand. I mean, decades of government policy has ensured that universities have to be driven by by student demand uh, and student demand for languages in general is declining. I mean, there's this 
And it is partly, I think, related to the idea of the Anglosphere, that there is this sort of weird arrogance that we in the English-speaking world have, which is essentially we believe everybody else is going to learn English, so why should we bother to learn their languages? Now, it is, of course, true that English is the most taught language, most taught foreign language across the world. Um, and there are many countries in which a lot of education goes on in English. But the access to the culture and the history and the writings of a country don't come unless you have the language. And again, you know, going back, I do have this memory actually of being in South America, because it was both in, in Rio and in, in Buenos Aires, and these extraordinary bookshops and feeling how inadequate I was because, okay, I could work out the title of the book. Uh, maybe I could read the first three uh, words of the first sentence, and that was as far as I could get. And that's in a way a horrible metaphor, I think, for our country where it is not taken for granted, as it is in many parts of the world, that everybody automatically should be able uh, to manage two or three languages. And I wonder, I mean, you, you mentioned this sort of, I suppose it's a, a demand-driven type university system that we have in Australia at the moment. Um, and you do reflect on how academia has changed and I suppose radical academics as well, their role in universities. Um, how do you see that these days? Well, universities I think have, for all sorts of reasons, some of which are good, namely huge expansion. You know, when I went to university, I went to the University of Tasmania as an, as an undergraduate. And at that stage, there would have been one, possibly two universities in every Australian state. And that was it. It was very much an elite institution. And now, of course, we've opened that up. And that's great. Um, we've brought in vast numbers of overseas students. And despite some of the issues around that, I think that's also great. But the other side of it is that universities, because of government policy, uh, have been driven more and more to behave like corporations with huge emphasis on the bottom line. Now, if, you're, if you need to be constantly worried about what pays, then a whole lot of the work that universities ought to be doing, which doesn't have automatic financial returns, uh, will become less and less uh, possible. I'm not sure that – I mean, I think there's always been this myth about radicals in universities. Um, certainly, there have been periods in history when universities have been the basis for a lot of radical activity. But, you know, even at the height and, – and I think back to the early 70s and, say, the Vietnam moratorium, which was where I first became, I guess, politically involved – it wasn't a majority of staff and students. And there is a bit of um, nostalgia that goes on. Uh, I think the same is true today. And there's going to be a strike, right? The climate change mm. strike in, is it Friday week? Yeah. I yeah. think? Yeah. yeah. Now, you know, my hunch is, yes, lots and lots of both school and university students will take part. The majority won't. And so let's not get too carried away in assuming that universities, as the Australian newspaper would like us to believe, um, are hotbeds of radical uh, <laughs> subversion. And you, you write in your book about some kind of chance encounters or, or experiences mm -hmm. that led you 
on your career trajectory to going to the United States, becoming a writer, becoming a, a leading kind of gay rights campaigner and, and that word activist um, and an academic yourself. Could you imagine if you were starting your career out at this time that you would follow a similar path and, and end up at a university? That's a really interesting question. You mean were I now – yeah. Um, I think it's very hard to know. I think that now, for example, there isn't the same need to go overseas for graduate study as there was 40 years ago. Uh, most Australian universities or all Australian universities have graduate programs in a way that we really didn't. I'm not sure there's the same sense that we have to go overseas uh, because nothing is happening here. Um, so I really can't imagine. Um, I certainly, if, if somebody now was starting off and went overseas to study, I don't think they would have the same set of discoveries because we are now linked into the local the, the greater world in ways that were just unimaginable in fact you know I, I i rather miss a lot of the things that used to be associated with going overseas you know you'd go overseas and you'd buy books and you'd buy records later on you'd buy cds that you couldn't possibly get in australia mm. now of course you just you know sit up in bed take out your ipad and order them online um, and it we read stuff online. You know, most most people are constantly exposed on a daily basis in ways that really weren't possible when I first went overseas. And I, I also, I mean, I'd love to talk about sort of community movements, I suppose. And we know, um, I mean, when you were writing this memoir, Dennis, you it was also the the plebiscite on um, same-sex marriage was taking place yep. in Australia. And um, this... Uh, I suppose there's a, there's a mainstreaming of, of queer culture as well taking place at the same time. And I wonder what, how you see that um, sort of changing, I suppose, that community movement um, that we've seen um, certainly around LGBTI rights and a whole bunch of other issues. You know, I think it's interesting because as movements become successful, they also become more and more like the rest of society. And... I think that it's not surprising that you could mobilise large numbers of people in favour of what was, after all, a very conservative demand, namely same-sex marriage. And you're actually right. I mean, I think if you read Unrequited Love, you, they're running through it because I was writing it, as you say, during that whole period of the non-plebiscite, you know, the non-binding postal vote. Um, and my cynicism about it comes through. Uh, it was it was an interesting experience because, of course, even though I was very cynical about the goal, there was no question that we had to get a massive yes vote because the, the, the people like Tony Abbott had succeeded in turning it into essentially a vote about acceptance of sexual and gender diversity, which was much bigger than marriage. I think it's also worth noting, because one should always note this at every opportunity, that our current Prime Minister, despite the fact that a clear majority in his electorate had voted yes, didn't have the guts to vote. He was one of the people with Tony Abbott and I think Barnaby Joyce who skulked out of the chamber to avoid committing themselves. Now, for somebody who constantly tells us he believes in democracy, who is part of a government that put us through this whole very complex and expensive process, I think that is shameful. 
Mm. We're speaking with Dennis Altman all about his book, a memoir of sorts called Unrequited Love, Diary of an Accidental Activist. And I guess we're kind of witnessing an extension in some ways of the fallout of that, you know, affirmative vote in favour of mm-hmm. marriage equality with the the, raci- the, the, the sorry, religi- religious discrimination bill being debated in Parliament. What's your sense of how that's playing out and, and um, yeah, I, I guess the political landscape? You know, I think the government have been very clever. And I think Christian Porter, the Attorney General, is a very, very clever strategist because basically he's come up with a bill that neither the left nor the right like. Now, that's a really good position to be in if you're a politician on a difficult issue. Um, I think there are some things in that bill that are probably unnecessary. Uh, I think it's going to cause some problems. I don't think it is going to be uh, nearly as damaging or deleterious as some of the people opposed to it um, in the in the, in the queer movement think. Uh, I don't think either it's going to satisfy uh, fundamentalist religious organisations. But to me, the much bigger issue is the one that's been passed off to the Law Reform Commission, which is about discrimination within religious schools. And For me, there's a really basic issue, which is not so much should a religious school have the power to um, hire or dismiss people because of their faith. I'm genuinely bothered by the fact that Australia is a country in which a very large number of kids go to church-based, faith-based schools. They don't, therefore, mix with people uh, from other backgrounds. And if they're fundamentalist schools, it doesn't matter if it's Christian or Muslim or Jewish fundamentalist schools, they're constantly exposed to a very narrow view of the world. And I think that, for me, is a much more threatening uh, issue than some of the provisions in the Religious Discrimination Act, which, as I say, I suspect will be passed with some amendments and in the end won't actually make a great deal of difference. And you saying that makes me reflect on, you know, as you write, you know, wrote the book over a couple of years, you travel a lot and you go out and you meet a lot of people and you speak to a lot of people and attend events and give lectures and you, you're, you're busy, you're out and about. And one um, of the uh, sort of community gatherings that you went to um, was the LGBTI Ageing and Age Care sort uh-huh. of conference. And for some reason I, I sort of sat with that entry because it – I'm I'm curious. I mean, what are the the issues particular to the queer community around um, ageing and aged care, do you think? That's an interesting question because I'm not sure that there are that many. I think there clearly are for people, uh, once you go into aged care facilities, there will be, I think, always an assumption that everyone is heterosexual. And I know there's been a lot of work and some very interesting and important work done to try and get aged care facilities uh, more aware of the fact that there is sexual diversity. But I think the reality is that there are a whole lot of issues around ageing and most of them are not actually very much connected to your sexuality. I do think, I mean, I think that there are some very interesting things going on now uh, for people in the queer communities their age. I talk about Tristan Meacham um, and his wonderful coming back in again ball, coming back out again ball, sorry, not the coming back in, back out. Uh, (laughs) That was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? (laughs) Um, And certainly 
there are still many people out there who have lived most of their lives hiding their sexual desires or hiding their own deep sense of their gender identity. And as they age, I think it becomes more and more difficult. And there I think there are some really interesting things going on and the work that people like Tristan and the people at Archers are doing um, are, I think, tremendously important. But for most of us, I think the reality is ageing is not fun, you know. Um, I can I can warn you about this. Ageing is not fun and ageing is something that we all are going to face if we're lucky enough to live long enough. It, it feels like kind of a, a philosophy of yours that you live by, speaking of ageing, uh, and you, you have this quote in the book that, that is, um, as we age, our memories are the raw materials for the next generation's history. So this idea that you, you engage with and, and pass on the, the knowledge and experiences you've had to help inform, I guess, politics, progressive movements today. In what ways do you see that kind of interplay between your very rich and, and varied experience as a, as a writer, as an academic, with the younger generation? Of, of writers and activists? I think that's a really interesting question. I think because that is where I think there is a real distinction between people who are queer, using queer to cover a whole range of sexual and gender uh, possibilities, uh, and other sorts of, quote, communities. Because if you grow up in a particular ethnic community, your family passes on the history in various ways. And, and of course, Part of the whole multicultural uh, policy of Australia is things like, you know, you send kids uh, on Saturday morning to language schools. Uh, You force them to learn folk dancing when they'd really rather go to the disco. But the family plays a central role. For people who are queer, it's very unusual. Occasionally, yes, the family might. But by and large, people have to find it outside the family and the community they grow up in. And so I think that the work of organisations like the um, uh, Australian Lesbian Gay Archives in Melbourne is enormously significant. And, And what strikes me is that a lot of young people really desperately want to have that connection. And I think there is a point, I I can't remember the exact quote, but I quote the British historian Eric Hobsbawm talking about those moments where, in a sense, you move into a grey area where you both are dealing with your memories, but but other people are writing up your memories as history. Um, That can be fun, uh, although I have to say that sometimes when they write up the history, I doubt that it was exactly the way they portrayed it. (laughs) Interesting. Well... I, I've never had that experience of my life being written up as a history as well as still oh, living it. Wait, it's, wait, Will. <laughs> I don't there, know there, about well, that. Come on, You're there, a particularly was... interesting person, Dennis Osmond. I don't think that it happens to everybody. Yes, <laughs> but, you know, I can see in 30 years' time there will be an earnest graduate student writing a history of Triple R and they will come and interview you <laughs> to find out what it was like to talk to Dennis Altman at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning. Well, we better take a photo after this uh, conversation <laughs> Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in and we wish we could keep you longer, but we can't. Um, we're totally out of time. Um, Unrequited Love is a diary of an accidental activist is Dennis Altman's latest book and it's been great to um, have you in. Great to meet you. All the best with the rest fun. of the book. Yeah. 
We know the detention centre on Christmas Island is in use again. It reopened earlier this year and now there is one family detained there. The Tamil couple from Bilawila in regional Queensland, Nadas and Priya, who are fighting deportation to Sri Lanka along with their two Australian-born children. They'll be there until at least uh, their next court date on the 18th of September, I understand, in which the immigration status of their youngest daughter will be properly heard. David Mann from Refugee Legal is here and it's really great to have you, David. And uh, it seems, um, you know, that we were waiting for David Coleman to use his discretionary powers. He's the immigration minister to allow this family to stay. But maybe there's another way that this deportation could be fought in this next court case. Well, let's wait and see. The matter, as they say, is before the courts. Uh, So it would be, uh, you know, I I obviously can't comment um, on the outcome. It's before the federal court now. And... Their fate, uh, once again, is um, is caught up in you know, legal battles uh, and uh, the way in which our system responds to the plight of, um, of people on humanitarian grounds, really. I mean, this case itself will be not so much fought on the humanitarian aspect. That, that issue uh, was before the Minister uh, to allow, uh, you know, the, the request which is actually draws upon a law in Australia, and I think this is really important, there is a, under the Migration Act, there is this special provision that if someone is refused, doesn't meet the narrow legal test of a refugee, um, they can still, uh, if, if their case is refused and they appeal and they exhaust their legal options, they can still, under Australian law, appeal to the Minister for Immigration uh, to intervene on humanitarian grounds to allow them to stay. And the essence of this power is that uh, it, it's held by one person in the country. It's an awesome power, really, because uh, it, it allows one person in the country, a politician, to make the call on literally every year thousands of cases where on compassionate grounds, on humanitarian grounds, you know, in the spirit of sort of the you know what one would hope is the gener- generosity of spirit in our country, people plead to the minister to be allowed to stay and there are so many cases that we where we help people who have you know such strong and compelling reasons to be able to stay that is maybe they've got Australian family maybe they've got uh, they've made very strong links with the community they failed in this request many others that we've helped in the past with similar cases have succeeded so it's a but um, now they're back before the courts and this is more of a legal question really it's a it's sort of a technical legal argument about um, really whether the youngest child um, is uh, should have their case reconsidered or, or considered where they didn't before can you just um, remind us what led to the government attempting to deport this family so recently? I mean, what were the conditions that led up to that? Yeah, the conditions were that led up to it. Well, it has a bit of a, a long and sorry um, history to it, um, to put it mildly, a really disturbing history where this family, that um, a, a Tamil uh, family uh, who had sought asylum in Australia, they'd come as many have in the past and, and fled in fear. They um, they applied for refugee status and were refused and... Um, and that is because they didn't meet the, the technical legal test. Then they appealed to the courts. And it's even narrower, the question in the courts. The court doesn't rehear someone's case if they're refused, uh, refugee status. What they do is they look at whether the laws were applied properly to their case. It's quite a narrow legal sort of legal question. So it's not hearing new evidence or anything like that? That's right. It's not. Mm. No, no. It's literally saying were the laws properly applied. And it's quite a technical legal, legal issue that uh, is looked at. Uh, and... They were refused, so they appealed their case throughout the the, the legal process. They were refused, uh, and uh, and then it came to this question of whether 
despite having lost um, in the courts, despite having lost you know, their case, whether um, they would be allowed to stay on humanitarian grounds. Um, and uh, that is where we get to this you know, plea to the minister, really, uh, under Australian law. The minister has this power, and it's a personal power. You can't appeal it. You can't, I mean, it doesn't conform with any of the ordinary basic uh, standards of natural justice or process in our country. It's incredibly opaque. It's difficult to know. It's really, you know, there's, it, 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 our experience over the years is it's applied in a very arbitrary way, this power, it, very inconsistent, um, often in circumstances where it's really, there's no rhyme or reason. You can't work out why one case was approved and another wasn't. And we've seen recently that, you know, the appear, um yeah, where au pairs were allowed to stay and this power was used to allow them to stay, and this has been raised in contrast to the situation of this family. Back to the, the scenario, they were, they were, as we know, whisked away from their community and detained in Melbourne. Um, it was a sort of like a, a sort of raid-like situation where they were taken um, from their home, uh, locked up, brought from um, Queensland to Melbourne, locked up for a long period, have continued to plead their case and have had huge public support, as we know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, and then, out of the blue, um, once again, uh, very recently, uh, there were moves to deport them. And in fact, those moves were well underway when an injunction was sought in the court, an urgent injunction. And this is now what's before the court: is that the the hearing of the case um, on the back of the injunction to see whether uh, there are grounds uh, to effectively to rehear or to look at, not even rehear, but to look at um, the situation of um, the youngest uh, child, um, Veronica, who um, the argument will be, my understanding is that um, that that, um, that that case hasn't been looked at yet. And so we, we've not heard actually that much from the Immigration Minister, David Coleman, who has this power that sits with him, um, but we have heard from uh, Peter Dutton, Home Affairs, and we have heard from Scott Morrison, Prime Minister, and really they've been saying that you know this could trigger more boat arrivals, and uh, if they, this discretion is actually exercised, and I wonder, I mean, do you get a sense that that is believed in the community that this one case is going to trigger this because certainly the people in Biloela and National Party MPs and more. Are saying, well, actually, these are the pe- the kind of people we want in regional Australia. So there is this is quite a few, you know it's it's quite curious to see that we're not actually hearing that much. I'm not saying we haven't heard from him at all, but that much from David Coleman on this issue. Well, it's very interesting we haven't, and again, it's a personal power. And this, is, so if you'd imagine, with a personal power, um, that you at least. Um, make a full account of, of what your reasons are or a proper account to the public. It's actually a power that is described as uh, uh, the minister needing to act in the public interest. That's what It's actually a public interest power, uh, which is personal um, and, as I say, can't be appealed. Um, and people are saying that certainly under Peter Dutton, and I don't know if the numbers are there for under uh, David Coleman, but thousands of people a year would be granted the ability to stay so that's several people a day apparently that that this power is used to um, allow to stay in Australia so it's not in that sense controversial. No it's used all it's used very often Um, and it's used basically the provision the whole idea of the provision is there are so many it recognises that there are so many situations where um, you know just situations where where people don't fit the narrow legal test uh, or you know, there are questions around the, the technicalities of the refusal, and yet, um, on compassionate and humanitarian grounds, there is a justification to make an exception. And so, with so with the media interest, then, uh, 
is there a sense that the government's kind of cornered on this? And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be media interest. There should because it is in the public interest and this community in particular has been incredibly vocal and supportive and there's supporters travelling and there's people in Christmas Island visiting the family, supporters of the family. So it is a, a story. It's a media story. But is there a sense that the government now can't back down because of under pressure? Well, I, I think what the first thing about all of this is what it, what it is laying bare um, is the is the extremity of the deterrence agenda in our country. I mean, once again, that the personal plight of the family is a, is graphically highlighting um, where we've come to in our country on the question of asylum, and that is that somehow allowing this family to stay, we are told by our political leaders, could um, literally uh, result in. Um, you know, an armada of boats descending on our shores that somehow to make exceptions like this could see an armada of boats come as if somehow, you know, one crack in the edifice, you know, uh, and uh, and a flotilla of boats will descend on our shores. Mm. When this discretion is exercised When all this the time. discretion is, yeah, it's exercised all the time. Um, and, uh, and, and question, there are real questions around the process, but it is. Um, but I think that what, what one thing that's happened is that, um, it, it, and this happens sometimes with cases uh, of situations, personal situations, that when they do so graphically highlight the tension in the policy, or really I think such such, such a really um, deeply, deeply concerning, um, uh, you know, focus on you know, not the plight of people, but you know, sort of on you know, how, you know protection of borders prevailing over the protection of people, or the human consequences being completely discarded uh, in the name somehow of, of stopping the boats. What we see is also, um, once again, it, 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 it gets into the political arena again um, and it becomes a sort of a, an interminable jousting in the political arena. And the real problem here is that, is that um, it makes it very difficult to come up with a sensible, common sense and compassionate outcome. And I think that this is the real problem at the moment, is going to the point about, you know, are the government backing themselves into a corner? Have they? Um, has it hit that point where it's very difficult to see a, a you know, proper resolution? I hope not. Mm. Speaking of, of common sense or, or lack thereof, something that, that I'm struggling to kind of grapple with is why the family has been sent to Christmas Island because this is, is a place that's been excised from Australia's migration zone um, in the aftermath of that kind of tamper affair. The plane was forced to land in Darwin when that injunction um, w- was agreed to. But then they've been sent to Christmas Island, which we've been told has been, you know, was reopened and then closed a short time ago. Why are they there? Well, Christmas Island, the detention of people, the human warehousing of people on Christmas Island, as we know from the terrible, terrible history, uh, has caused untold harm uh, and suffering to people uh, who um, in so many cases have already suffered. Uh, and so... Why on earth um, uh, it, it can be seen as a, as a viable option to take this family thousands of kilometres away to be warehoused on Christmas Island really beggars belief, just in a practical sense too, bearing in mind that um, it was done in the context of a legal challenge uh, and has literally um, taken uh, the family uh, even further away uh, from their legal representatives, um, and which is a real cause for concern itself in terms of what that does to the ability of people to get legal help that they desperately need and are entitled to under Australian law as they plead their case. 
is a real question. Um, it has all of the, the, the makings of being punitive, uh, in, in, you know, as a sort of a, a punitive act. Now, whether it was intended to be, well, uh, you know, I think there have been various... Uh, various theories floated or various explanations given um, by the government about this. Um, but to the extent that it could be said, and, and one of the suggestions was that it was done uh, because of concerns about protesters, the idea that you would sort of put a family in this terrible situation, um, you know, uh, and, and really take them out, out of sight... Um, uh, but out of reach of those that, that you know that they that yeah you know, who were supporting them, both lawyers and others, mm. uh, is an extraordinary um, act. And uh, the idea that somehow it could be done uh, in, in response to protesters uh, once again highlights uh, that this is once again we're not looking at the plight of the people um, involved here, um, but rather you know political objectives um which you know place place this family once again in a terrible predicament and one that could well cause further harm. Um, David Mann is with us from Refugee Legal and we've been speaking about the Tamil couple and their children from Billwilla in regional Queensland who are now on Christmas Island awaiting for another court appearance uh, or court date uh, on the 18th of September with the federal court to find out what next. Uh, and there's, I mean, you've been doing a lot of stuff, uh, David, and we know also in the next couple of weeks we're going to hear the Medivac laws come um, well, they're going to go back to Parliament. Uh, what, what do you foresee happening there, Crystal Ball? Oh, Crystal Ball! <laughs> oh, wow. I'm, I'm, uh, well, <laughs> I'm not going to make any predictions. Um, I think it's you know it's it's obviously caught up in the political process. Um, it, it's a highly it's become it's been made to be a highly politicised um, issue, which it shouldn't be. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I mean it's, it's it's maybe just to quickly explain yeah. for those that. Don't yeah. know the Medivac laws. Yeah, and I was going to. I mean, to, just to distill it. I mean, the, the Medivac laws were introduced earlier this year uh, for people who, in relation to the plight of people held on um, Manus and Nauru, um, so many of whom, from all of the medical evidence, uh, are deeply suffering, uh, and that the acute nature of psychological and physical harm means that many uh, of the people there uh, who've been marooned for years and suffered untold harm desperately need medical help that they can't get on those islands. And so um, it, it, the, the whole purpose of the laws was to take decisions out of the hands of bureaucrats and politicians about the, the medical needs of people and put them in the hands of um, you know, medical experts, doctors, to make judgments about the medical needs. The simple question being, can those needs be met on Manus or Nauru? And this, uh, these laws were introduced to so that the government... Um, would uh, so that people could apply for medi for medical evacuation based on medical evidence of two doctors, uh, and that the the government is required under these laws to make a decision within. In fact, the minister is required to make a decision within seventy two hours. And they passed when they had a minority government. Now there's a majority government, um, yep. and and the result may be different. That exactly right. So the government um, the, the government. In fact, in the lead up to the election, in, during the uh, during the election, uh, were saying that they would seek to repeal the laws. Uh, there's been no serious. I mean, really, the question is whether these laws are necessary. That's that's the question. Mm. There are other processes by which the Australian government can bring people back um, for medical treatment. Uh, they've used that many times, but the all of the evidence is that there has been a long-standing and serious uh, medical pattern of medical neglect where people have not got the treatment they need on the islands and have 
and the government has not acted um, either quickly enough or, or indeed um, at all in relation to dire medical situations. Twelve people have died on Manus and Nauru. Uh, um, and the real concern is that the risks are so high for so many that if people can't uh, apply under these laws or can't be brought off by the, by the Australian government moving itself, that more lives could be lost. That's what's at stake. And the question is, are these laws necessary? I can tell you our organisation has been one in working in a coalition of other, with other NGOs, taking a leading role in this uh, group called the, um, you know, the Medical Emergency Response Group, MERG, and we have helped uh, scores of people to apply under this process and to be medevac to Australia. The process is working. It's been absolutely necessary. And the amount of people that we have helped who desperately needed to be evacuated but for far, far, far too long uh, had been left uh, in a situation where serious medical um, conditions were not being treated. These laws have resulted in them being medevac to Australia urgently for the, des- for the help they desperately need. That's what's at stake here. And by the way, just on the, on the politics of this, it may well, uh, it, the numbers suggest that it will come down to Senator Jackie Lambie's vote. At the end of the Very day. Very interesting to watch uh, how that plays out. Yes, and there was a Senate inquiry recently which we and others presented at. That Senate inquiry and the evidence, if people are interested in looking at that, the evidence in that Senate inquiry, the Senate Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee, uh, that you can get on the website and have a look at the evidence. I and mean, there are transcripts of the evidence and the written evidence and the oral evidence, including from us and many others that uh, have been deeply involved in this. And, and speaking of, of the politics of, of asylum seeker and refugee policy, I mean, we've seen in the case of the, the Bilawila family the immense power of um, a personal story and how that can really galvanise um, people from across the political divide, really, both out there in, in the community and Conservative MPs voicing the support for, for them being allowed to stay. Um, the Labor Party has also been calling for this uh, family to be allowed to stay, but do you see that there will or, or might be the emergence of a genuine opposition to the current regime that we have in Australia and have had for some time? I think it's... I, I actually think it already exists. Mm. It's just un, It's just been um, somewhat un, untapped. I think that, if I can put it this way, um, whatever mandate um, successive governments um, of both persuasions have claimed for stopping the boats, there has never been a mandate to mistreat people in this way. There has never been a mandate uh, to... You know, to, to harm innocent people, um, and uh, and I think that what I think it is deep with our community uh, a sense of capacity uh, of compassion, a generosity of spirit. I just think that it needs to be given voice. And what we see in the situation of the Bilawala family is once you hear the plight of people, you can see their faces and you look at them and say, "These are people with a heartbeat." Uh, who are in our community, that's when you get the groundswell. It exists. You can't get the groundswell out of the blue. It can't be manufactured overnight. It either either exists or it doesn't. What we're seeing is an expression of the community will and a goodness that exists across our country. People don't want uh, to see uh, you know, people harmed in this way. And uh, it's just so obvious. It's a matter of basic humanity and common sense, actually, uh, that, uh, that this family should be able to stay and that we should treat people decently, and humanely. Thank you, David. It's always good to have you on Triple R and um, David Mann from Refugee Legal. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.